The Good Investing Podcast connects you with successful investors and business leaders who invest in or are experts in a range of industries, but do it with a difference. In a nutshell, I'd categorise the commodity cycle as past its peak, but that's a very general comment, and we're positioned accordingly. If you go back 24 to 36 months ago, you had a different scenario than you had now. You had an environment where inflation, the burgeoning signs of inflation were really emerging. You had the equities in the commodity space that were pricing it at or below through the cycle prices. And that was an opportune time to be exposed to uh, resources. And we were overweight in the sector at that point. We don't see those characteristics currently. One of the last remaining structural advantages you have is to look out a bit further than others. It's an enduring characteristic that I think will stay because people want to make returns today. And if they can't see returns today, they may not invest and that depresses the prices of some assets. So to the extent that you can look out a bit further, and obviously you have clients that allow you to do that, which is very important. I think when you follow a process and you're doing what you say you do, and you're looking for these strong businesses, that is going to be probably always a source of, of alpha. Welcome to the Good Investing Podcast, episode 25. My name is Matt Nicard. I'm co-founder and CEO of Ethical Partners. Now, it's a very special episode today because in a world first, I get to interview both portfolio managers here at Ethical Partners, Nathan Parkin and Andrew Wilson. Now, you know Nathan as the co-founder and investment director of Ethical Partners. And Andrew is a portfolio manager and founding member of the team, starting with Ethical Partners even prior to us having a financial services license around five years ago. So today we're going to touch on portfolio positioning, what has worked and what hasn't, the commodities cycle, merger and acquisition activity, as well as the ongoing valuation discrepancy between small industrials and the broader market. We'll touch on the banks, very topical indeed, and then we'll run through the investment case for two key portfolio companies. Now, some of you are probably thinking to yourselves, you recall Andrew's name coming up at some stage on the Good Investing Podcast. Well, that is very astute, dear listeners, as Andrew interviewed Stuart Diver of Event Hospitality all the way back on episodes nine and 10 of the podcast in a fascinating two-part discussion. I would encourage you to go back and listen to those. Andrew, how does it feel being on the other side of the golden microphone. Oh, it's a new experience, but I'm quite excited. Very honoured to be here. Excellent. Well, look, you'll do well. Just relax. Take it easy. No nerves. I reckon you'll... Uh, well, I'm, I'm actually going to go very easy on you, just like you went on Stuart Diver. So uh, nothing to worry about Much at all. appreciated, Matt. No worries. Uh, now, we've timed this podcast to coincide with the end of the first quarter. So the Ethical Partners Australian Share Fund finished the March quarter up 5%, performing the benchmark by 1.7%. And financial year to date, the fund is up 17.4%, outpacing the benchmark by 4% all net of fees. I'm going to start with you, Nathan. Can you run us through the drivers of performance for the most recent quarter? Thanks, Matt. Yeah, sure. And as usual, it was individual stock positions uh, that made all the difference. And I'll start with the detractors. Firstly, an overweight position in Pinnacle uh, that we think is very cheap on a through-the-cycle basis. Uh, Qualitas also detracted, uh, but it was stock reported very well in February and it's just retreated, we think, um, you know, in the short-term basis. And A2 Milk, that the company, uh, the market's a bit worried about the transition of um, some of its manufacturing with its China-related products. But it, again, it reported in line with expectations. But all three of these companies have net cash positions and good prospects going forward. Now, on the positive side, we had good corporate activity in the portfolio with one of our largest positions attracting a 45% premium um, for the cash takeover bid during the quarter. And we also had stocks uh, during February like Reese, Super Retail, Australian Clinical Labs and Reliance 
reporting results that beat expectations quite strongly. Our underweight banks position uh, also added value um, as mortgage competition starts to take away net interest margin, as we've seen in the last couple of days. Um, that's creating some pressure on bank share prices, but we are underweight that sector. Okay, look, that's a great stock-specific run-through. And as you say, it is always underlying positions, underlying stock positions that matter most. Can we just talk about investment style a little bit, just um, kind of wrapping around that, um, the type of market we're in um, and why that suits the fund um, at this point in time? Yeah, sure. Look, our our investment style is bottom-up and very stock-specific focused. We're value-oriented which means we buy companies where we see a difference between where they're trading on the market and what we value them at. But before that, we, we look at quality first. So every every stock assessment we make starts with the balance sheet. And why that's important in an environment like this is that you know credit is less available than it was. It's more expensive than it was. Those companies have the financial wherewithal with, with strong balance sheets, uh, can actually do have more flexibility in a environment like this. We need companies to also make uh, positive operating cash flow. That again protects investors in the sense that they're not relying on the market market levels and sentiment to you know, sustain their own businesses. Uh, management and board and quality of management and board is very important to us, as is uh, a good sustainability strategy, which also protects shareholders. So we're very stock specific. Um, we've got some good I guess circuit breakers in our system, in our in our investment process, that leads us, you know, down the path of you know very strong companies. And where we see a difference to where they're trading out in the market, when we see an opportunity there, that's the uh, that's the trigger for owning the stock. Now, companies in this environment are facing tricky conditions. There's cost spikes, there's labour shortages, there's supply chain delays, there's a changing consumer. Um, and the quality of business matters more than at easier parts of the cycle. That's when those factors actually come to the fore. There's no doubt that companies with solid cash flows and strong balance sheets have more options. And we've seen that uh, you know, in recent times. And as results come through, it's quite clear that companies that have these competitive advantages, and they are competitive advantages in terms of the strong fundamentals, that's when this, that's when it comes to the fore. You know, management teams will see opportunities in a tougher environment to take market share. And if you've got strong financials within your business and an experienced management team, you'll recognize those. And they can be, you know, five, 10 year market share gains that can be had um, from weaker competitors in an environment like this. We've seen companies like, you know, Breville build up their inventory because they can, because they've got a net cash balance sheet. We've seen companies like uh, Reese be able to pass through supply chain cost increases through to customers because they've got a direct relationship there. So this is when that really matters. And this is why you know, one of the really big reasons why the fund, <clears throat> excuse me, is doing, you know, is doing better than the market is because we own these quality businesses. So, so what you're saying, I guess, is that the, the style of the fund is really an output based on those companies that make up the fund um, rather than something we go in with at the beginning to say, hey, we need to pick a company of a particular style. It's really investment process. Outcome is quality value. Absolutely. Yeah. It's all driven by, it's all driven by the initial selection process. And look, we don't, 
we don't even value companies until they get through our process. So that's number one. Um, and the result is that you have a high number of companies in the portfolio with a net cash balance sheet. You've got a, you know, every company there we know makes money. Um, and by definition, you know, we're looking for those opportunities and where we see a vast difference between what the market's valuing something at and what we think it's worth, that generates a, a big active position. And as you said, companies with better balance sheets can actually make the choice as to when they invest or divest rather than be forced into it. I want to go back to early calendar 22, uh, when the market was lingering around its lows, probably at the peak of uncertainty around inflation and so on. Now, the fund bought into some very high-quality companies. You mentioned a couple of them, um, Goodman, Pinnacle, Reese, West Farmers and Breville at, at levels you rarely get an opportunity to own these companies at. Some would call these growth companies. Um, how Can you just help listeners understand how they fit within the process, whereas they may have the, the sticker growth? We've just talked about the overall style of us as a manager and the fund. Can you just marry those two things together for us? Absolutely. And look, they are growing companies. That's true. Um, won't refute that. And they're companies that have proven that they can grow over time. But the but the point is that it matters what you pay for them. So where price becomes reasonable for better quality businesses, to us, that looks like an opportunity. Some of those companies were trading at 45 times earnings prior to where we bought them, and they fell to multiples of less than half that. So we would never have paid the price for companies trading at those high multiples because you pay away the future benefit as an investor and you're left you know, holding, a, I guess, a set of assumptions that need to be made for you to make money. Now, where we don't need to assume much and the price of those companies is readjusted downwards, we don't need to assume that they grow that fast to make a really solid investment case. So as a, as a value investor, we're looking for value and sometimes that looks, and we're kind of indifferent here to whatever that looks like. It might look a lot of business that's you know, trading below its net tangible asset backing, where it's got good assets, the earnings are under some pressure, or it might look like a, a much higher quality business, um, but where the price is fair, um, that also looks like an opportunity to us. So I think as, a, as an investor, we're indifferent to those two. All we're looking for is an, is an opportunity. So they are growing companies. That's absolutely true, but it matters what price you pay for them. Makes sense. Now, I'm going to shift gears here a little bit and uh, talk to you, Andrew, about the current commodity cycle. So much debate as to where um, resources companies should be trading. Maybe as a, as a first step, can you just remind uh, our listeners um, what types of metals and mining companies um, the Ethical Partners Australian Share Fund can own? the criteria and how we look at things from the start, then we'll move on to where we are in the cycle. Of course, Matt. So look, let's just start with our process, which you know we live and breathe it, so I believe it's easy to explain. So firstly, we use our proprietary Epora process or framework to assess the sustainability credentials. You know, and the miners are no different in that respect. So we look firstly at on a geographic basis, you know, using the Transparency International Corruptions and Perceptions Index. Where does an asset sit? You know, if the, if the company's got a material asset in the bottom third of that index, we won't invest in it. We don't invest in fossil fuels and, and coal, uranium, and the like. We want a business to have a strong human rights 
track record and focus and we want good sound environmental practices. And we, within mining, you, you're really focused on you know biodiversity, natural capital, how they manage water and the like. And then from a financial perspective, we want strong balance sheets. You know, I don't believe there's a role for a lot of financial leverage in a miner, given how much operating leverage that already sits in those kinds of businesses. You want good mine life. You want assets that sit low on the cost curve so they can generate cash through a cycle and that are well managed. And then final, as a final point, I'd say we really want companies that are mining, that are digging things out of the ground that can assist in a decarbonizing world. So our focus would that from that perspective would be copper, nickel, lithium, iron ore, and the like. That's our that's our hunting ground and our, that's what our process suits. So I think one one takeaway is that the fund can own resources companies. A bit of a misnomer, I think, that um, an ethical fund or a, or a responsibly managed fund cannot own a resources or mining company. That's not the case. I, I think you've you've clarified that really well. Um, and it's around managing risk, of course, and some of those other factors that you all those other factors that you just mentioned. Very very cyclical, which you touched on. Um, where are we in the cycle now, and and what factors do you look at in determining that view? Good question. So in a nutshell, I'd categorize the commodity cycle as past its peak, but that's a very general comment. Uh, and we're positioned accordingly. Uh, if you go back 24 to 36 months ago, you had a different scenario than you had now. You had an environment where inflation, the burgeoning signs of inflation were really emerging. You had, you had, uh, the equities in the commodity space that were pricing it at or below through the cycle prices. And that was an opportune time to be exposed to uh, resources. And we were overweight the sector at that point. We don't see those characteristics currently. We see equities pricing in above through the cycle commodities, commodity prices. And as a result, we're underweight the sector, quite uh, quite a material underweight bet at this point. Now, there's also cycles within cycles. I mean, this is all very broad brush to start. Then we're going to zero in. Iron ore is different to lithium, which is different to copper and nickel and and so on. Um, so if we just focus a little bit on iron ore to start, obviously critical for a number of companies, critical for this country. Uh, wh- where are we at there and what are you looking at? So the iron ore, you've had a really interesting situation for almost the best part of a decade with iron ore. And it's been categorized by two things. It's been suppressed supply of iron ore. And the two main drivers of that have been significant uh, issues with getting uh, ore out of Brazil, particularly through the various challenges that Vale's faced largely due to uh, dam collapses, amongst other things. And then you've also had at the margin limited supply from the Pilbara. Um, and that's been catalyzed, unfortunately, by the tragic events with Yukon Gorge, which have made it really difficult to get incremental tons as, as, as people have had to review and, and sharpen up their practices as should have happened a long time ago. So that's been a supply perspective. And then from a demand, you've had a reasonably stable situation with demand for, for some time. You've had a steady growth in, in tons being bought, particularly out of China, and that's been driven by the property market. And so you've had this construct which has been quite healthy. But what we see today is really quite a different scenario. So firstly, from a supply perspective, this value over volume mantra, which has dominated the industry, is really out the window. So you've got Rio, which is committed to Samandu, and that could be 5 to 10% of incremental seaborne tons. You've got Vale that's growing again for the first time since 2018 in terms of production. Fortescue is consistently hitting their straps and also committed to growing tons out of Africa. And BHP's got its own ambitions to grow in the Pilbara. So the supply situation looks really quite different. And demand for the first time, I mean, if you go back 
2022 tons of steel produced in China were actually below 2021. And the NDRC is committed to the same uh, scenario again in 2023 being less than 2022 or at or equal to. And we think that one of the key elements there is that property is about 30% of steel demand in China and property is no longer seen as, uh, if you'd like a vehicle for speculation, it's a vehicle for, for utility. And that's a material um, change in the way that steel will be produced. And we feel that that creates a different dynamic. And the the scenario that drove iron ore to trade at or above a reasonable through the cycle uh, price for much of the last five to 10 years, we believe that's in the rear vision mirror at this point. Certainly seems a lot harder to uh, in China to successfully stimulate the real estate market when prices are going down consistently and the demand isn't there. So that's certainly something we have seen that the, the, the I guess the, the put, the, the Chinese government put hasn't really been there. You've been talking about it here internally for some time and I think it's playing out um, in exactly in exactly that way. That's linked to this concept of decoupling in the latest quarterly. You wrote about decoupling. Can you just explain to listeners what that means in relation to where we are in the commodity cycle? Yeah, so decoupling is a, it's a very simple notion. It's the idea that China's economic fortunes are no longer linked with the US's or they're diverging. And, you know, we believe this notion is what you could call an accepted wisdom in the market today. And in general, in financial markets, accepted wisdoms are, are, are dangerous places to, to be fishing. And, you know, you look at, uh, as a proxy for that concept, the Bank of America Global Fund Manager surveys that was out only a couple of weeks ago showed that two of the top three most crowded trades currently or positions currently is long China and underweight US financials as a, as a way of playing the underweight US exposure. So we think the market's position for decoupling. Now, why do we, what do we look at there? So uh, most financial students would, would acknowledge the concept that financial markets often, if they don't repeat, they at least rhyme. And decoupling was a very strong narrative if you go back to, particularly to 2007. And it was actually at that time considered this situation where you had much like today, the US was removing liquidity from the system. The Fed was quite actively hiking rates whilst China was growing double digits. And everyone thought, well, this is a great way to be positioned. Now, as it turned out through 2008 and 2009, the economies converged. And whilst the absolute levels of GDP growth through 2008 and 2009 were different between the US and China, the level of change and the direction of change was very similar. So you saw five or 600 basis points of decline in GDP growth year on year in China over those couple of years and a similar kind of quantum in the US. And we would expect the same kind of trends to occur today. And as a result, we're not buying into that that ideology. Good answer, Andrew. Anything to add there, Nathan? Very good. Um, Now, one more for you, Andrew. Lithium, very, very topical indeed. We know the importance of that metal, and I had to look it up. It is a metal, not a mineral, although that could be debated. I don't know if you guys have got a different view on that. Um, I'm calling it a metal. In the manufacture of batteries in particular for electric vehicles. However, the supply chain is, is really opaque. You know, we talk about spodumene, we're talking, I won't even go into it, Andrew, you're the expert. Uh, just to help us understand the demand and supply dynamics and, and how that translates into owning actual listed equities that the fund can invest in. 
yeah, look, I appreciate you calling me an expert, but I'm, I feel that might not necessarily be entirely <laughs> too appropriate. But thank you're way you very, too humble. Thank you very much, Matt. Look, the lithium cycle, I would categorize as truly fascinating. If you go back, you don't have to go back fast. Let's say mid-2020, you have a situation where hard rock spodumene, hard rock lithium hard spodumene was trading at, call it $360, $380 a tonne. And you couldn't find a company or an investor that was bullish lithium at that point. Now you go forward two years, middle of last year, the price was 8,000 it touched, 8,000 a tonne. So it went up more than 20 times. It was very difficult to find someone who wasn't bullish lithium at that point. And that's very quickly unraveled. Now the old saying, high prices, cure high prices. And it's a very, it's a stereotypical boom bust scenario that you see in, in the commodity space. And what's gone on now is that's unraveled, as I said, and, and, You've had a spodumene price that's halved, give or take, to about 4,000 a tonne, depending on which indices you want to use. But a really interesting dynamic that I think you're referring to, that the downstream products, the hydroxides, the carbonates, have actually fallen by more than two-thirds, or up to 70%. And the dynamic we believe at play there is that it's proven much easier to build excess refining capacity in China than it has proven to get excess tons out of the ground of any kind of quality. And there's a couple of things that are driving that, but one of the key things seems to be that the cost curve to mine lithium is much steeper than we or anyone else probably historically assumed. And what you're seeing at this point there is a a level of tension in the lithium market and an attempt to find an equilibrium price that is significantly higher than the consensus expectations had historically been. And so for what are we thinking about that? So we actually recently re-entered into a lithium exposure through IGO uh, as these stocks underperformed. And what we saw with IGO was it was capitalizing a price of twelve to thirteen hundred dollars a ton. So call it 70% below the prevailing spot price at the time. As the market's trying to find this equilibrium price significantly north of that. And IGO, I mean IGO is it's got 25% of arguably the preeminent hard rock lithium mine in the world in green bushes in Australia. It's going to be a net cash balance sheet. It's really importantly for the dynamics we're discussing, it's got downstream, it's, it's, a, it's an integrated miner. And then it's also, um, it's also diversified by commodity through nickel. So we saw that as a really interesting way to play lithium as it was getting back on the nose again, if you want a better, for a better term. And uh, yeah, that's how I'd summarize the lithium market currently. Fascinating. And uh, hopefully listeners have got a, uh, just a taste of some of the demand and supply drivers here, which are constantly changing, are very, very complex. And uh, I guess it's our job to try and assess that and invest in the right equities. With regards to IGO, that, that was the um, the biggest positive um, attributed to the fund in uh, or fund performance in 2021, as Andrew said, um, sold out of the stock at, at a point after that and, and now re-entered recently. So yeah. um Probably the only other one, Matt, maybe I should have touched on was copper. We're talking about please, iron ore. Please, We're talking about um, the iron ore cycle. The other sort of dominant commodity has been uh, copper for some time. And the the interesting thing we find with, uh, with copper at the current juncture is that there are many, many bullish arguments you can make around decri- declining uh, grades. Very increasingly difficult to find tier one assets. Um, and then there's this really strong decarbonizing thematic that copper can play a part in. And, and what people look at is things like you need four times as much copper in an EV vehicle than you do in an internal combustion engine vehicle. And so these are all really interesting. And, but 
in our view, you really have to focus on what is copper genuinely used for. You know, more than half of copper ends up in the home, whether it's in equipment, wiring products and the like. And it's that general industrial use that gives copper the moniker Dr. Copper because it's just seen as a barometer of, of, of the health of the economy. And we expect that c- to continue. And due to the some of the uh, facets around the economy that Nathan highlighted earlier, that probably means that the upside is limited. And one of the key pushbacks we often get on that is the idea that copper's in this structural shortage and that will see that it, de- it I almost used the word decouple, it will move away from this idea of it being a barometer of the economy. And I think people probably need to also note that copper's actually been in a structural deficit since 2016. Even over that time, I'm sure most people would acknowledge that copper has largely traded as a barometer of the health of the economy in that period. We would expect that to continue. So it's probably just worth highlighting that's the other key commodity we get asked about a lot. And, and nice, uh, look, I, th- I think you've nicely separated there some of the structural and some of the cyclical factors as well. And, you know, our job is to, is to weigh up the relative merits of both those components, which I think you've uh, summarised well indeed. I want to switch gears. I want to move to M&A, so merger and acquisition activity. Um, Nathan, can you just run us through the United Malt case that was a, a company that um, has come under the focus of uh, the M&A spotlight in late March. Um, it's been a holding for some time. Um, at the end of March, it announced it received an all-cash $1.5 billion indicative takeover from uh, Souffle, a competitor, at a 45% premium to the last traded price. What do you think Souffle is seeing in United Malt that the Australian listed market, most of the Australian market, didn't see pre the bid? Oh, look, it's a great it's a great question because you know these uh, these things do exist in the market and you know they're in in front of everyone's eyes until until one of their competitors sees value. So I'll just talk briefly about the M and A market and then go into UMG. I think the M and A or the merger and acquisition activity that started in twenty twenty three has surprised the market. Why is that? We're in the middle of a U.S. regional banking crisis. Liquidity is still being tightened by the Fed, and rates have experienced one of the fastest hiking cycles in 20 years. So, why why are companies pursuing M&A now? I think the answer to that is quite simple. We're in a lower growth environment, so one of the only ways you can sometimes take share uh, or get costs out, or you know, have some economic benefit, is to purchase another business. Um, but assets are also pretty cheap. So we look at the small cap industrials part of our market and, you know, it's relatively cheap. It's had one of the worst years in 2022 relative to the the big caps uh, in the last 20 years and the valuations are attractive and I think, you know, you're seeing these brands and and assets being bought uh, by overseas players uh, from Australia. We've seen United Malt, you've seen Newcrest, Blackmoors, Australian Clinical Labs and Helios, which we'll talk about in a moment, Origin, Oz Minerals, Liontown, Invocare and Pendle so far. So there's a, there's a cycle going on. I think the the fundamental reason is it's just tougher uh, out there and, you know, one of the things you can do is is buy something else. UMG specifically was spun out of Grain Corp in 2020 and it's been trading below the value of its assets pretty much ever since. So what's happened there, the company's had a number of profit warnings around, like it's an agricultural stock. So, you know, drought in Canada does affect the earnings. 
they had to import um, import barley from other places in the world to process that. That cost them a lot of money in the last few years, and I guess the market's been uh, overly focused or, or very focused, as it usually is on short-term earnings, but the assets are worth something. So the setup of that industry is that uh, it's operating, the malting industry is operating at about a 97% capacity utilisation. Capacity in the industry is not growing. It's fairly mature. And there are a number of players um, out of Europe, including Maltry Souffle, um, that the only way they will expand is is to buy other assets. Now, interestingly, United Malt was the only malting player in the top 10 to be listed globally. Um, so it's a really an asset that could be purchased. There's significant synergies or, or benefits in terms of working capital, geographical, strategic expansion in buying United Malt. If you know the, the top three players are all cooperatives and other businesses uh, operating out of France. And Whichever of the top three buys United Malt will be the largest malting player in the world. So the assets had some strategic value. It was surprising to us they were trading so far below what we estimated their replacement value was. These are assets that have been kind of in the same state. Um, I don't mean location. I mean in the same um, way and operated the same way for more than 50 years. Andrew and I had the privilege of going to Idaho uh, last year to see one of the largest malting um, processing plants in the world. And it was pretty clear that uh, that hasn't changed much in a long time. So I think the assets are predictable. Um, there is benefit in, in being the largest malting player in the world in terms of the customer uh, negotiations you can have. Uh, we know there's a massive working capital benefit here. Um, so what Maltry's souffle are seeing is that they're seeing an asset value and they're seeing the market focus on short-term earnings. And we try and look through that. We try and look at the assets. We try and understand the assets. We try and understand the benefits to other players from owning those assets. And we look at the industry and, you know, capacity expansion is really going nowhere, but the, there's a high utilization of those plants. So I think for all of those reasons, it became an attractive target. We like the fact that it's an industry player that's, that's sort of doing DD on the business at the moment. Of course, that hasn't been finalised yet, so there's a there's a period of time here, and there's a scheme that might be enacted uh, later on this year. So it's early days for this, but I think uh, I think the attractive price that those assets might trade at you know, is going to benefit is going to benefit whoever buys them. So there's a real duration mismatch. To to sum up some of what you said, the market's looking short term. Other buyers and and us in this case looking longer term um, assets that just weren't generating the shorter term returns required, but um, we don't invest on a six, twelve, eighteen month basis, and I think we've been able to be rewarded so far on that. Taking yeah, that look, view, I think one of the last remaining structural advantages you have is to look out a bit further than others, and that's an enduring. It's an enduring characteristic that I think will stay because people want to make returns today. And if they can't see returns today, they may not invest and that depresses the prices of some assets. So to the extent that you can look out a bit further, uh, and obviously you have clients that allow you to do that, which is very important. I think when you follow a process uh, and you're doing what you say you do and you're looking for these strong businesses, um, that you know that is going to be 
probably always a source of, of alpha. You mentioned Australian Clinical Labs there and Helios. Can you just run through that case? Because there certainly appears to be significant synergistic benefits actually for both sets of shareholders in that. So you can just run us through that um, situation. Yeah, so, so a bit of background here. Um, ACL is the smaller of the two parties. It's it's approached uh, Helios shareholders with a essentially a t- what looks like a takeover offer, but it's essentially a merger situation of these two companies. So both, if if it if it was to proceed, both sets of shareholders would participate in those synergies, which I think is an important point. It's not ACL trying to buy Helios and ride off into the sunset and realise the opportunity itself. Both sets of shareholders get to participate here. What's required to, I guess, enable that that deal to take place, it's a consolidation of two pathology businesses in, in Australia that that operate domestically. So it does need ACCC um, approval. That's, uh, that's in the, I guess, being considered at the moment, if I can put it that way. We don't know the outcome of that. That is really a critical juncture for this deal. Um, let's let's talk about if it was approved. Um, we can all, I guess, see what happens if it's not. But if it does get through that gate, then the synergies of combining two like businesses are very real. There's $95 million worth of synergies outlined in the, in the, in the takeover documents. We think they're quite achievable. They're, it's an experienced management team that will put those in place. So we believe the synergies. There's also a different bucket there that they've talked about that is kind of fixing Helios um, from where it is today. We don't put a whole lot of weight on that, although it it might be a prize of, of this deal as well. You don't need to to make this really, um, really attractive for both sets of shareholders. The other thing we like about, about this is that it does give Helios shareholders a natural way to de-gear. You know, it was only a couple of days ago that that Helios had to seek a waiver of its of its debt covenants with its financiers, and so they have got a bit of debt. Um, ACL doesn't have you know a whole lot of debt or almost any debt. So again, you know, we're in we're in the company in the space. It's got a strong balance sheet, and and just going back to what we said before, it gives you options. So the fact that ACL is a smaller of the two parties has come out and said, "Hey, we'd like to do this consolidation." We think that's because they have that option to do that, and they've got a forward-thinking management team and board that are looking for the opportunity here. And we've said this publicly that you know our assessment or our conservative assessment of the value on offer here is more than you know is five dollars a share plus, and converting that into Helios is forty to fifty percent upside from from the respective share prices in the market today. Now that's a big enough prize to drive, hopefully drive these two businesses together and realise that. So there's there's a terrific amount of upside. If it doesn't proceed, I guess we're always looking for you know what's the downside here? What, what can we lose if this doesn't work? Uh, ACL on a standalone basis is trading on about fourteen times PE. It's got a great balance sheet. It's got good cash flow business. It's cheap. It's going to grow anyway. The incidence of pathology testing uh, that is rebounding from kind of COVID, you know, the COVID period, ex-COVID testing um, is quite positive. And so the company is obviously very, earnings are very sensitive to the volumes coming back that is happening. So whether or not this deal proceeds, we think that the stock is undervalued and there's good upside. There is certainly more upside 
though, if the deal proceeds. Andrew, it's, it's not only industrials where we've seen the M&A, as Nathan touched on briefly. The resources sector's hotting up as well. What does it tell you about where we are on the cycle, just building on what you were talking about before? Yeah, that's a good question. So there, there are definitely two trains of, of M&A going on at the moment. Uh, and Nathan sort of alluded to the first element, which is what you could categorise as counter-cyclical, opportunistic, uh, taking over these small cap industrials that are under earning or at a low point in the cycle, which is great that we've been able to participate in that through UMG. And then the second element looks quite different. So it's the M&A in the resource space. Now, M&A in the resource space on our analysis is much more what you could call pro-cyclical. And what I mean by that is the analysis shows that the number of deals within the mining space in M&A moves positively with the share prices of that index. So as the as the price of resource stocks go up, you get more M&A and vice versa. So as M&A is picked up in resource space, we would see that in a nutshell as a cautionary sign of where you probably are in the resource cycle, which sort of echoes some of the themes we were talking about earlier. No, it does. It does reinforce what you were saying earlier. Nathan, I'm going to switch to the banks, super topical given what's happening in the US, but also what's happening domestically with regards to mortgage competition and uh, recent interest rate rises and so on. We're, we're currently underweight. Um, what worries you the most about the sector? I'll tell you what doesn't worry me the most at the moment um, is that the credit quality is quite good. Uh, the capital levels are good. The valuations are reasonable, but the the competition in the mortgage part of the market is having a very depressing kind of effect on net interest margins, which is a key driver of profitability for banks. So that's that's currently playing out. We've seen uh, two bank results in the last two days where that has been the case. What we were worried about going into this, I guess, this reporting season for the banks was that the net interest margin that was forecast uh, in consensus by analysts was too high. And that's certainly the case. So you probably see uh, double-digit uh, earnings disc declines or, or declines from consensus and downgrades into next year for the banks. Um, once that's played out, though, if we get a sense, and we, look, we're monitoring this weekly in terms of the discounts the banks are offering to customers, uh, they're probably, um, just as an aside, they've given back about 50 basis points of the Reserve Bank's rate increases just through competition. So that's quite significant. It's quite significant for the customer, obviously, but it's also quite significant for the bank's bottom line. Um, if we see that, I guess, competition come in and pull in, um, that will be quite positive for the for the bank net interest margin. We haven't seen that yet, so we're looking for it. So that what that's what worries us the most. But the rest of the sector, the amount of provisioning, the capital, and even the dividend payout ratio will, will look reasonable. Obviously, the market's expecting a cycle here, but again, that's already priced into consensus thinking around bad debts and the rise of that. We're coming off a a period of zero bad debts into a period of consumer stress. So that. That is something we're thinking about, but we think the banks are well prepared for that and they're getting ahead of it a little bit. Um, but we just need to see the competition settle down a bit. And it's been the back book competition, hasn't it? So people are already on loans, refinancing and going to their bank and saying, I can get this offer here and the incumbent bank matching it, which seems to have hurt. Yeah, absolutely. So the front book competition, there's obviously big discounts there, but everyone else is seeing that as well. So, you know, the average life, even though you might take out a 30-year mortgage, the average life of a mortgage at a bank is about five years. So people are refinancing, you know, 
I guess, more quickly than the term of their loan. So you see that hit the net interest margins quite quickly. But it is a very different scenario here versus the banks in the US. I think every night we wake up and have a look at the prices in the morning and you've seen more regional banks off a significant um, amount. So at least here, these are typical banking competition issues rather than more structural issues like that's we're right. seeing offshore. Yeah, that's right. We seem to be immune to that at the moment. Um, we would never say that a similar scenario can't play out here, but you've got four major banks and you know deposit insurance and the like. It's pretty clear that the Fed cannot uh, insure all of the deposits or the U- US banking system. So they're, they're moving around quite quickly and in, in c- creating a fair bit of drama. Yeah, worth probably pointing out some of those differences. Very fragmented banking market in the US. Um, less regulatory oversight relatively. Um, high capital levels here. I think the interesting thing for me for uh, the Silicon Valley Bank was this massive duration mismatch. So short-term deposits, um, long-term investments, um, big change in interest rates and bond yields and, and a loss on those investments. And then it comes back to confidence. So I guess if people see a bank... Um, losing money or having difficulties with its investments, they withdraw their money, and then we all know that banks are about confidence primarily. Um, so, so quite a big difference, and I think you touched on it too, Nathan. Um, a, a large proportion of the deposits here are guaranteed. Uh, a lot of the regional banks um, in the US, you don't have that um, level of um, guarantee um, unless something terrible goes wrong, and then all of a sudden the guarantees come in. So quite quite a few differences um, there for sure. Um, now, moving on, I've got one eye on the clock here. People love listening to us, but they probably won't love listening to us for um, all that much longer. Um, now, as you've mentioned, or both of you mentioned, we're, we're bottom up, absolutely. But if I was to ask each of you, and I'm going to put you on the clock here, it's a 60-second maximum. Uh, we have got the um, the Ethical Partners Hourglass, in fact, 60-second ethical partners hourglass here, right? There it is. Thank you. I've got it ready to turn over. 60 seconds on outlook for markets, and I'm going to go at random here. You're both ready. I'm going to start with Andrew. Oh, didn't see that coming. Look, what I would recommend is the investing equivalent of working one down to fine leg for a single, and that's a REIT. Now, we recently added region group into the portfolio. It's got a what you call a really high quality set of retail assets, the core exposure being through Woolies and Coles as anchor tenants. And from that perspective, it provides investors with indirect but positive exposure to the food inflation thematic. Um, you know, like the broader sector, region has underperformed over the last 12 months as we've moved into a different interest rate regime. Your REITs in general have been really on the nose, a very under-owned sector. And for, for understandable reasons, um, but we've seen an opportunity. And we would note that the business has a really strong balance sheet and it's managed uh, in a very conservative fashion for the way they assess opportunities, the way they do deals, but also the way they um, the way they value what their own asset base is. So one of the things we acknowledged in February, they downgraded their NTA by five or six percent, I believe, at the result, which was a significant differentiator versus the peer set. And so what you can still do, surprisingly, is still buy this business at a discount to that lowered asset value of almost five to ten percent. You're getting a, a greater than six percent fully franked dividend yield. And with that underperformance and that opportunity and that risk reward, as I said, it's it's not a pull shot for six. It's it's a it's a single down to fine leg. But we think the portfolio needs to be made up of of uh, of lots of different elements. 
requirements and this one really suits uh, the sustainability credentials and the financial credentials that we're looking for. So that's what I'd put in. Excellent. That did was, I make it into the? It was fifty-eight seconds. Perfect. Uh, and that, and that probably just dovetails, I know, with uh, with your view on on you know being, I guess, slightly defensive um, from a market's point of view moving forward. So that that all uh, that all works. Um, Region Group, Nathan, I'm going to turn to you. I've got the Ethical Partners Hourglass here for a sixty-second wrap on either a key stock and/or your market outlook, or combine the two, like uh, Andrew did. I can do both. The economic part won't take long. I'm no economist. Uh, but I would say that the key to the Australian economic outlook is unemployment, uh, which remains very low. But we are seeing, even in the last week or so, some early signs of corporate stress. They're starting to, you know, businesses are starting to cut advertising budgets, media spend, which could also kind of right, go into rising job losses. And we're very conscious that the transmission uh, of rates from the RBA to Australians has been delayed versus other cycles, um, but that will likely start to bite in late 23. So I'm cautious economically, but I would say that stock market sentiment is still in the doldrums. We say no real sign of investor inflows. All of the things that happened at the top of a stock market cycle are still not happening. You're starting to see a bit of M&A, uh, but we're not as, so economically, yes, we're cautious. We're not that cautious about the stock market. There's still terrific opportunity there in some of our larger positions, especially defensives with some upside. I mean, Ramsey falls into that space uh, squarely. So it's got a solid balance sheet, interest cover of seven times. It makes some strong cash flows. It's got experience management and they're getting their ESG stronger every year. So a defensive asset that's got infrastructure type stability in pretty much every time except for COVID. And at 60 bucks a share, it's trading at 25 times forward earnings. Um, pretty much uh, that $60 levels it where it's traded all the way through COVID. But the difference now is that they'll probably grow on our numbers by 20% per annum for the next few years as surgery volumes recover. And we think it could be worth $80 plus on an underlying assets basis. And it's not that long since private equity uh, came for to take over the company and it fell over what essentially looks like a technicality. So again, with the market concentrating on near-term earnings, um, you know they're likely to miss the underlying value of the assets. It's not that dissimilar to United Malt. All right. Two very different opportunities. We'll cover a lot of ground. Thank you very, very much for um, taking the time to speak to your humble interviewer or host. Hopefully everyone's got an idea of, uh, of how we invest and some key names in the portfolio. So thanks very much, gents. Thanks, Matt. It's been a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Good Investing Podcast. Subscribe to hear future episodes and for more information about Ethical Partners Funds Management, visit ethicalpartners.com.au. The information contained in this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute investment or financial advice. You should seek tailored advice that is specific to your circumstances before making any investment decision.